ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I am thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV every week, twice a week, and boy, do we have a bumper show for you tonight. Joining me will be legal professor at the University of Adelaide and Rhodes Scholar, Dr. Joanna Howe, to discuss the recent ideological takeover of Calvary Catholic Hospital by the ACT government, followed by New South Wales One Nation MP Tanya Mihalik to take us through Labor's abandonment of Australia's working class and why workers should be looking elsewhere for a political home. But first, I'm sure most of you will remember the Supreme Court of the United States of America overturning Roe v. Wade in June last year. Roe, of course, was a 1973 decision by the court which found the US Constitution generally protected a woman's right to have an abortion. Now, this right was quite unique to the USA. Certainly in Australia, women don't have a constitutional right to have an abortion specifically. Abortion laws vary from state to state in Australia, which was the effect of the overturning of Roe v. Wade in America the relegation of abortion laws to the states. It did not have the effect of making abortion illegal and inaccessible nationwide. Nevertheless, there were a significant number of people who, from what I observed, genuinely seemed to believe the overturning of Roe v. Wade meant abortion was suddenly illegal in America. Hence the often hysterical reactions, both by politicians and the general public. Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had quite a bit to say on the issue. What the Supreme Court just did was that they chose to endanger the lives of all women and all birthing people in this country. But not only that, they've chosen to strip rights from men too. Because frankly, the right to our own bodies and the right to form our families, this is, this is something that belongs to all of us. And it does not belong to lawmakers. While certain members of the public were less refined in their objections. There are a lot of important conversations to have today, but right now all I want to do is roast the six Supreme Court justices who voted to strike down Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> Brett Kavanaugh, you're a creepy, ugly rapist. Boom, roasted. Samuel Alito, you look like you crawled out of a sewer. Boom, roasted. Lizard piece of shit. Justice Roberts, you look like you have Benjamin Button disease. Boom, roasted. Demon. What is there left to say? You've been a creep since the beginning of time. And your wife is a insurrectionist piece of shit too. And Neil Gorsuch looks like he hunts people for sport. Now, what I took from the tenor of these histrionics and what I've just shown you is nowhere near the worst of it, by the way, is that there are a confounding number of people out there, seemingly mostly women, who have a pathological need to exterminate human life while it's in the womb. This is surely not a natural female instinct. It's bound up by decades of ideological indoctrination by psychopathic abortion activists who rail against the family unit and think women must be quasi-men in order to have happy lives. The minute these activists manage to inextricably entwine abortion rights with women's liberation was the minute feminism became quite literally deadly. 
While the Roe v. Wade is very much an American concern, we know that Australia absorbs a whole lot of American culture, which is why it was no surprise the overturning of the decision made such a splash in the local headlines. However, what is surprising and indeed alarming is that it seems the ACT government took the Supreme Court's decision to end Roe v. Wade to go on their own pro-abortion crusade in the form of the compulsory acquisition of Calvary Public Hospital on the 3rd of July this year. Apparently, Australia has its own activists who have a pathological need to exterminate life while it's in the womb, in my opinion. Calvary was a Catholic hospital owned by Little Company of Mary Healthcare, which is a private institution. Given the faith-based concerns of Catholicism, the hospital did not offer procedures like voluntary assisted dying or, of course, elective abortion. And while the ACT government has insisted the compulsory acquisition was simply to do with supposed issues of efficiency and productivity by the hospital, the timeline of events surrounding the acquisition beg to differ, as does the nature of the acquisition itself. So where does this all begin? Well, on the 31st of May this year, the ACT government passed legislation allowing it to compulsorily acquire Calvary Hospital. However, when I say passed legislation, I mean rammed through, as outlined by the chair of the Calvary Task Force, Father Tony Percy, in May this year, before the legislation was passed. And uh, we've got people of all faiths, as you mentioned, that are, and people of no faith saying, look, this is a blatant attack, and it's, a, it's an attack not only on the property rights of Calvary, the land, the property, the service mm. agreement, but it's also an attack on uh, the democracy of the country. I mean, property rights are foundational to a, a free and fair country. So there's a real problem. The, the way the legislation is uh, constructed is, is very devious. So your viewers need to know that there'll be no discussion about this bill that was introduced on the 11th of May, just a few days ago. It'll be the compulsory acquisition will take place on the 3rd of July. So normally in the ACT, you've got to have two months of discussion, committees, reports, etc. That's all, but they're saying, oh, we're going to suspend all that. And then furthermore, listen to this. There's a Land Acquisition Act, 1994, which gives the details of how you do compulsory acquisitions. And on, they're supposed to be on just terms, and you'll remember the wonderful film, The Castle. Mm -hmm. And so the government said, oh, no, mm -hmm. oh, no, no, we don't even need that. So this is brazen, and this is an attack on a really basic a medical institution, so which educational institution is, is next and which part of the country is next. We've got to fight. This was preceded by a parliamentary committee report about increasing access to and funding for abortions within the Australian Capital Territory handed down by the ACT government on the 18th of April. Now, this report was scathing of Calvary Hospital and made a number of recommendations, one of which was that the hospital should perform the full suite of so-called reproductive health care options, which includes, of course, abortion. And just two days later, the ACT government announced a $4.2 million investment for free abortions. Now, a few weeks later, the announcement was made that the government would compulsorily acquire Calvary. 
So we can draw further inference that the takeover of Calvary was more than simply an efficiency issue in the ideological nature of the report itself. First, it makes a direct reference to Roe v. Wade. The outrageous Roe v. Wade decision from the USA has prompted Australian women to reflect on the various states of legality applicable across all jurisdictions in Australia, and importantly, to start a loud conversation about the actual access to services. The reversal of Roe v. Wade epitomizes the need for ongoing protection of reproductive rights. The inquiry and this report stand as a concerted initiative as part of this overarching and necessary vigilance. Then there was the thoroughly biased, rose-tinted glasses manner in which the report described abortion in the glossary. Dr. Joanna Howe, who we will be speaking to in a minute, outlined this in a commentary video on the report. Just the language straight away really jumps out at you as being completely unbalanced. So even the way they define abortion procedures in the glossary at the front of the report is a clear example of them using language to prosecute an ideological position rather than something that's based in facts or science. So let's look at the way they describe an abortion, a D&E of a 16-week-old baby. A dilation and evacuation is described as suction and medical tools are used to empty the uterus. Now, at a bare minimum, for the sake of transparency, they need to say that for a 16-week-old baby, a dilation and evacuation actually involves the removal of a fetus and the placenta from a woman's uterus. The fetus at this point is literally the size of an avocado. So to not mention that that is what's being removed is unscientific and inaccurate in a, in a glossary that's meant to be defining what a D&E is about. Certainly, this is disingenuous of the ACT government, to say the least, to describe a D&E in such a sanitised manner. And that, right there, is one of my chief gripes with the pro-choice movement. There is a concerted effort by pro-abortion ideologues to hide the reality of abortions from women. After all, most women won't have an abortion, which means most women won't have first-hand experience of the procedure, especially beyond the first trimester of pregnancy. And as I mentioned, with abortion now inextricably linked to women's liberation, the gushing, doe-eyed feminist followers of this movement are unlikely to be inclined to dig any deeper. Well, a few years ago, I was inclined to dig deeper than what I had been fed by popular culture abortion activists. What I'm about to show you is the video that made me pro-life, as the reality of abortion is delivered by former abortionist Dr. Anthony Levitino. Fair warning, some viewers may find this clip distressing. Second trimester d &E abortions performed between roughly 14 and 24 weeks of gestation. Your patient today is 17 years old. She's 22 weeks pregnant. Her baby is the length of your hand plus a couple of inches. And she's been feeling her baby kick for the last several weeks, but she's asleep on an operating room table. You walk into that operating room scrubbed and gowned, and after removing laminaria, you introduce a suction catheter into the uterus. This is a 14 French suction catheter. If she were 12 weeks pregnant or less, basically the width of your hand or smaller, you could basically do the entire procedure with this. But babies this big don't fit through catheters this size. After suctioning the amniotic fluid out from around the baby, you introduce an instrument called a sofa clamp. It's about 13 inches long. It's made of stainless steel. 
The business end of this clamp is about two and a half inches long and a half inch wide. There are rows of sharp teeth. This is a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. A DNA procedure is a blind abortion, so picture yourself introducing this and grabbing anything you can blindly and pull, and I do mean hard, and out pops a leg about that big, which you put down on the table next to you. Reach in again, pull again, pull out an arm about the same length, which you put down on the table next to you, and use this instrument again and again to tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart and lungs. Head in the baby that size is about the size of a large plum, can't see it, but you pretty good idea you've got it if you've got your instrument around something and your fingers are spread about as far as they go. You know you did it right if you crush down on the instrument and white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. Then you could pull out skull pieces. And you have a day like I had a lot of times, sometimes a little face comes back and stares back at you. Congratulations, you just successfully performed a second trimester DNA abortion. You just affirmed her right to choose. That is the reality of a woman's right to choose. When it comes to the compulsory acquisition of Calvary Hospital, there are a number of glaringly obvious issues. Private property rights, freedom of religion, government overreach, and worryingly, the precedent this sets for other private faith-based institutions like schools to be taken over by anti-faith governments for ideological reasons. But what really grinds my gears about the behavior of the ACT government is that they are part of the movement that hides the harsh, sick reality of abortion from unexpecting women who simply don't know any better. Abortion isn't health care. Beyond the obvious exception of a risk to the health or life of the mother, whose health is being taken care of? It's not something that should be glorified as a wonderful facet of women's rights. How can it when 50% of fetuses are female and if they're not exterminated in the womb, they will grow up to be women? The ACT government isn't advancing women's rights or female empowerment by funding free abortions or taking over Catholic Calvary and decrying the services they do and don't provide. Instead, the government is putting the very lives of the most vulnerable females, those in utero, at serious, serious risk. Joining me now to discuss all of this and more is Associate Professor of Law at the University of Adelaide, Dr. Joanna Howe. Dr. Joanna Howe, so lovely to have you here this evening. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Daisy. How are you? I am very well indeed and very excited to have this chat. Now, Joanna, what sort of precedent do you think this Calvary takeover by the ACT government sets for expropriation decisions across Australia that are not based on improving efficiency, but are instead based on an ideological bias? This decision sets a very dangerous precedent because we know if we look back at the train of events that led to the decision to forcibly acquire Calvary. There were reports done um, by the ACT government, and so it was an inquiry led by Greens and Labor that looked at abortion provision in the ACT, and it's very clear from that report that they were out to get Calvary. So in that report, they've got a dedicated section with ex which explicitly 
it tracks the fact that Calvary does not offer abortion. And they refer to the anecdotal story of one patient who apparently turned up to Calvary um, and she was having a miscarriage and an emergency situation and she was turned away because Calvary apparently said that they don't perform abortions. Now, interestingly, Calvary was not given a right of reply. So there was no procedural fairness done in that report. And later when it was publicly released, and it had obviously been leaked to The Guardian and the ABC because this was the headline story when the report came out, it said, uh, it said inquiry scathing of Calvary Public Hospital turning a woman away. And so they were already running a media campaign even before they announced the decision to take over Calvary. But the Calvary Public Hospital came out and said that that never happened, mm. that they do perform a dilation and evacuation for a woman that's in a situation where she's miscarrying her child because in that situation the child has already died or is, is dying and will not live. And so in that situation it's actually not an abortion. There's a lot of misinformation about the treatment for a miscarriage being an abortion and it's not. Um, it's the same procedure but it's not an abortion because the intention is not to kill the child. So, you know, there's a lot of questions that are being asked about that report and whether it was even factual. Um, and interestingly, the report didn't go after Canberra Public Hospital, which also doesn't provide late-term abortions either. Mm. Um, but, you know, they're not run by a Catholic institution, so they weren't in the sights of the ideologically driven Greens and Labor ACT government. And so, look, there's a lot of concerns about this. Forcibly acquiring a hospital in the middle of negotiations, no consultation given. And the government has said this is about efficiency, but Canberra Public Hospital is the worst run hospital in the country in terms of waiting times, and yet it was Calvary that was taken over. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of question marks, Daisy, about the decision. Absolutely. So, you know, given what you've said about ideology here, do you think that this decision is part of an overarching effort from Australia's progressive politicians to attack institutions of faith? Look, I think there is a real concern around that. I've just been in WA where a very radical abortion up to birth law has been introduced into the parliament. And it's really interesting looking at those speeches that um, Labor politicians in particular are making in that debate where they're talking about um, anyone who's against abortion is just because of religion. Mm. And they, they're talking about the fact that, you know, over there there's a hospital, I think it's St John's, that they want to take over because they don't perform abortions because they're a Catholic hospital. And so there's actually a lot of religious persecution that's taking place through our parliaments um, where our politicians are speaking against people of faith, against religious institutions, as if they are somehow um, as if they are somehow doing something wrong. When in actual fact, we live in a democracy, pluralism is part of the democracy and pluralism means that we've got a diversity of faiths, a diversity of peoples, we're multicultural. And really this is what inclusivity is about. If we're afforded diversity and inclusion then we're for all faiths and all peoples to coexist in Australia we don't all have to agree but I think what's happening Daisy is a really dangerous trend that if you don't agree with the establishment on something then your voice gets shut down and your institution gets attacked and and there's a real concern around persecution of people that don't comply with the you know this radical left ideology that's aggressively pro-abortion the Australian people don't agree with that. There was an Ipsos poll that came out just two weeks ago, Daisy. It showed only 31% of Australians support abortion up to 20 weeks. Mm. And yet in Australia, we have abortion right up until birth in every state and territory. And we don't even have a legal right to care for children who are born alive after an abortion. They're left to die. So, you know, we're in a pretty radical state of affairs that's being driven by this ideological agenda of certain political parties and certain people in the establishment.
Mm, and you're, you're so right there about public opinion. I mean, most people, even if they identify as pro-choice, that doesn't mean they, they like mm. abortion. Like, you know, they're, they're, most people, have, and I've read, you know, similar mm. polls to that internationally as well from, you know, the Guttenmacher Institute. Most people mm. are somewhere in the middle and they are generally very uncomfortable with abortion, but they generally don't want it after the first trimester. You know, that, that is where a lot of people seem um, to draw the line. So what do you think of this? I've thought that in recent years, because of this really aggressive um, abortion lobby, they have this pathological need to mm. exterminate unborn children. I always think there's the pro-life camp and the, pro, the pro-choice camp, but also what you'd call a pro-abortion camp. What do you think of that? Mm. I think that's right. So when you saw Roe v. Wade being overturned, and really all that decision did, um, Daisy, was it sent the decision on abortion back to the people, to Mm. democratic processes. And so it really wasn't very controversial because if the pro-abortion lobby can convince the people, then they're going to win that debate. But what you really saw was a shift in the lobby from being pro-choice to being pro-abortion. So you saw Democrat, um, you know, Democrat politicians in the US turning up with the word abortion or pro-abortion on their lapel and the O was in the shape of a love heart. And it, 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 it's, it's like they're trying to turn abortion, which violently ends the life of a child in utero. They're trying to turn that into um, a badge of honour when it really it can't be because it kills a human being. It's the leading cause of death, you know, in Australia today. It's the most unsafe place for a child to be is in utero. So, you know, I think they're trying to kind of package it up and they use these euphemisms. So they're like reproductive rights, reproductive mm, health care, oh, you know, abortion rights are pro-women. Yeah, I saw there was a cake store in Queensland that has even got a, a cake that they're selling which which says um, pro-abortion on it, you know, and <laughs> that's sort of the language now. But I, I see this as a good thing because, you know, I was pro-choice and you were too, weren't you, Daisy? Yes, yes. When you were younger. Mm. I was pro-choice. I think a lot of Australians might identify that as, as being their position by default. But when you look into it and you realise that a dilation and evacuation procedure is done without any pain relief on a child, they're pain capable so they can feel pain and you literally, the, the, the abortionist goes into the child and breaks off a limb, like the leg and then the other leg and then the arms and then they crush the skull and the child is conscious through this entire process. And I think it's really hard to be for something like that if you know what it is. And then the other thing I'd say is, you know, abortion up to birth, say in WA, this bill before the parliament, there's no ban on sex selection and yet we know from a study by the University of La Trobe, there's 125 boys being born to 100 girls in certain ethnic communities. And I'm Indian and I know that the country that I'm from will have 6 million fewer girls by 2030 because of this discriminatory treatment to girls in utero. And yet mm. abortion is somehow meant to be pro-woman. And, 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 you know, and the WA bill has no ban on sex selection. I was able to successfully lobby for that in South Australia. We've got that in our bill, in our law. But, you know, the WA health minister has refused to put that ban in there. Yeah, um, congratulations for for lobbying that in South, in South Australia because you make such a good point and I, I mentioned it um, in my editorial as well. Um, I think that feminism really went off the rails when you know, the right to an abortion uh, became inextricably mm-hmm. linked to women's rights. Uh, you know, that that was yeah. when it really started to go downhill. But the problem yes, with completely that... completely agree abso- with you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The, the problem with that is that 50% of fetuses are girls. So I don't know. It, it's strange, don't you think, that they call themselves pro-women by being pro-abortion when that stance puts, if you know little girls who are at their most vulnerable state in utero at risk Mm. of their lives. 
Absolutely. Like I think the reality about abortion is it's deeply ableist. It, mm. it, it sanctions killing people just because they're disabled. It's also deeply sexist because it sanctions killing girls just because they're girls because abortion on demand up until birth allows abortion for any reason. You know, and so, mm. and so I think it's really important to unpack that. And let's also be honest that there's no reason ever for a late-term abortion. So once you've got a viable child, so after 22 weeks, you don't have to inject that child with poison, induce a heart attack in utero, which is painful, and then have the mother deliver them vaginally intact. The mother goes through labour in that process. You know, you what we should do is say we've got a viable child. It's no longer my body, my choice. That child is completely independent and has to come out some way. And the question is, are we going to be humane and deliver that child alive or are we going to deliver them dead? If they come out alive, they can be placed for adoption and there are many families on that adoption waiting list in Australia. So, you know, I think the reality is we need to have a proper conversation. And I also just want to, you know, applaud you for calling out second wave feminism for betraying us, betraying our generation of women, you know, by signing up to the abortion cause. So the first wave of feminists who got us the right to vote, women like Elizabeth Stanton in the US or Elizabeth Nichols and Mary Lee here in Australia, they were fir they were firmly pro-life. They were mm. against abortion because they knew that women largely chose abortion because they're coerced into it or because of socioeconomic reasons. And so they recognise this is not a pro-woman thing. But the abortion lobby in the 1960s, they just joined up with the women's movement. And as a result, we have been let down ever since because instead of saying we want workplaces that enable and empower women to be mothers and we want a culture that does that, we have given the green light to workplaces, to big corporations. We've let them off the hook and we've said, you know, you just pay for women to get abortions. Women don't need to be pregnant. Mm. And so we've totally neutered women's reproductive potential and capacity by forcing them to comply with this artificial male norm. Yes, you're you're exactly right. I, I mean, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of the the earliest proponents of abortion on demand were were communists because it meant that women yeah. um, could you know could literally just work like men and be free labour in the market and that you get sort of dressed up as women's rights. It's, it's a deeply uh, regressive idea. And look, what really irritates me, well, for many things that irritate me about the pro-abortion lobby, and you touched on it as well, is the, the language gymnastics that they do. So they talk about, you know, mm. reproductive health and abortion is health care. It's not health care. No one's health really is being taken care of unless there's a, a risk to the mother. Um, the language like my body, my choice, well, no, it's not your body you're making choices about. It's mm. that it's a, a baby is a totally separate set of DNA. So that is just scientifically unsound. It is so deceptive, isn't it, that they, they and also the clump of cells rhetoric, you know, oh, a baby's mm. just a clump of cells. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a clump of cells. You're a clump of cells. What's a clump of cells? Mm. It, yes. is, it is so deceptive, isn't it, for them to dress abortion up in this sanitised, empowering way when the decision is very painful for the baby if it's done at a certain term, not great for the mother's mental health, but they push this rhetoric onto unsuspecting women who just don't know any better. It's totally unethical isn't it it is and there's a lot of money behind it mm -hmm. let's be real about this you know um there's millions of dollars that are pumped into the abortion industry by the australian government every year and there's huge money to be made from abortion you know there's eighty-eight thousand abortions every year in australia which is correct wow that's a lot of money per abortion that is going to the abortion industry so that's one of the big reasons why the truth isn't getting out there is because the establishment has been bought out on this issue so daisy i set up with a colleague enid lyons list which 
is a group to get pro-life women into the public square. And the minute we launched, we were just attacked by the ABC, by the advertiser, by the Guardian. And I made a decision to go out on Instagram. And so please do follow me if you're listening on at Dr. Joanna Howe. Um, I've also got a website, drjoannahowe.com. I, I feel like my call is to really speak out on this issue to people directly because they're being lied to by the establishment. Well, you are incredibly brave for doing that because, you know, women especially who speak out um, against abortion and who identify as pro-life get some of the most appalling attacks, like, you know, that you just attack like you would not believe. So big, big kudos to you. Um, now, on the subject of Calvary, do you think that this decision um, by the ACT government and also that rather egregious report um, is testament to a dangerous assumption of ideological homogeneity across Australia by the current Albanese government. Everyone just seems to think, at least in the establishment, that the general public is just pro-abortion, but it's not the case, is it? No, it's not the case. We know from opinion polling that majority of Australians identify as pro-choice at six weeks. But once you go further, so as you said earlier in the interview, past the first trimester and certainly up to 20 weeks, you have an absolute minority that are supportive of abortion. So the Australian population is not homogenous on this issue. There's a diversity of views and it's nuanced. But yes, the ideology that's being pursued by the political class is very much uh, monolithic. It's one, um, it's one thing only. And in the case of abortion, it's pro-abortion up until birth. Even after birth, a child has no legal rights if the mother's intention was to kill the child's life through abortion. So, you know, the homogeneity there isn't representative. And I think one of the reasons for it is because Emily's List was created in 1996 and Emily's List's sole mission was to get pro-abortion women into the Labor Party, it, which is something they've been extremely successful at. And it's been like a disease. It's infiltrated not just the Labor Party but the Liberal Party and the Greens are obviously so aggressively pro-abortion. And so in the ACT, when you have a, a coalition between the Greens and Labor, that's a government that's just being driven by this radical ideology that isn't representative um, but manages to move the like move the dial further and further in that direction it absolutely does and it's it's absolutely completely tragic Look, Joanna Howe, you you are so fabulous we have to have this chat again um, please just tell everyone before you go you mentioned your website and your Instagram tell everyone where they can follow you thanks Liz. Thank you so much, Daisy. I knew we would be kindred spirits. Oh, me too. When, when oh, you yeah. Out for the interview. I thought, you're a woman. Yeah. You're a woman I've wanted to meet for a long time um, because you also have used your voice and platform to speak out, and I really applaud you for that. So I've started doing that despite, you know, a lot of fears because I am a professor of law at a, uni at a secular university mm. and, you know, I've had big attacks on me since doing this, but I must admit I feel so happy to have found my voice. So if people do want to find out more, they can go to my website, drjoannahow.com. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok on YouTube, Dr. Joanna Howe, and on Facebook, Dr. Joanna Howe Official. Thank you. Fantastic, everyone. Get on and follow Dr. Johanna, Joanna Howe. Joanna, much love to you and God bless. And I hope you see, I hope we see you again soon on the program. Thank you, Daisy. Well, Anybody who has been paying attention to the political landscape over the past decade will have noticed Labor's slow march away from the working class. 
The once worker-centric, socially conservative party of the everyman has unwittingly shifted gears in the modern era, transforming itself into a lofty party of the elites, whose preoccupation with social justice likely indicates Labour pollies and their advisers spend far too much time scrolling Twitter. This is a bit of a chicken and egg situation. After all, there has been a global shift over the last 10 or so years of wealthy people who attended university moving to the left. Unencumbered by financial woes, those people can afford to pay attention to trendy social justice causes like climate change, Black Lives Matter, feminism and the rest, and make those wishy-washy causes their top voting issues. So. Whether left-wing political parties, including Labour, shifted first and the voters followed, or the voter shifters and the parties followed, I'm not sure. Either way, it means the Australian Labour Party, like the Democrats in America and UK Labour, have lost their reliable working class base. In Australia, this was plain to see in the 2019 federal election, when seat after mining seat in Queensland fell to the coalition, thus scuppering Bill Shorten's chances of becoming Prime Minister. Now, this was the result of a colossal misreading of the room by Shorten and his Labour buddies. They centred their campaign around renewable energy and climate change targets, conveniently forgetting a large chunk of their voter base is in the mining belt. Such voters don't look too kindly on grandiose promises of net zero that will cost them their livelihoods. The long and the short of it is that Labour has transitioned from a party representing primary and secondary industries to one that caters to the policy inclinations of bureaucrats, public servants and inner city yuppies. A key factor has been the loss of tradesmen from the party's historical base. Over the past few decades, tradies have disengaged from organised labour in favour of small business ownership, a type of employment that favours right-leaning policies. Tradesmen used to be employed en masse by large companies before Australia deindustrialised and its manufacturing sector declined. As former New South Wales Liberal politician Prue Goward put it in a 2021 article for the Financial Review, Labor's big loss has been the millions of men in the skilled trades, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, mechanics, who for generations led their base. As Australia's industrial sector crumbled in the 1970s, the tradesmen employees who survived converted gradually to capitalism. Many have become small business owners and the marginal tax rates and complex regulatory regimes developed by busy Labor governments have eaten into their political loyalties. Compulsory superannuation made them investors with an investor's eye for economic opportunity. What's more, tradies have clear and uncomplicated views of the world. They suspect social justice is another way of talking about welfare recipients who won't get a job and they don't like being called working families because they're really just families. Labor's overtly left-leaning social sentiments are another factor that is diverting its base. Labor has become a wokish party that primarily focuses on social issues rather than bolstering industries. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's voice to Parliament is, of course, testament to this. 
The leader of the Labour Party is more interested in implementing a meaningless parliamentary mechanism as a summit of his own political ambitions, rather than pushing for policies that would re-industrialise Australia, and the workers can sniff this out a mile away. Besides, telling Australian workers and their families who are struggling to pay their mortgages and power bills thanks to a crippling cost of living prices that they are somehow privileged because they happen to not be Indigenous is more than a little on the nose. So, where do the workers go? Sure, some of them have moved to the, to the Liberal Party, but on the net zero front, they're just about as bad. A February report from the Institute of Public Affairs entitled An Analysis of the Employment Consequences of a Net Zero Emissions Target in New South Wales found that the emissions reduction policies of both major parties at a state level heading into the March 2023 New South Wales election put 138,000 jobs at risk across the state. Pointedly, 64% of those at-risk jobs are in rural and regional areas. So, not a lot on either side of the political aisle for the workers to get on board with. But is there somewhere else they can go? Joining me to discuss all of that and even more is New South Wales One Nation MP Tanya Mihalik. Tanya Mihalik, so lovely to see you this evening on the program. Are you doing well? I am, thank you, Daisy. I'm doing really well. I've um, been about in One Nation for about nine months now, and I've got to say it's the first time in my political life that I, I feel like I have some freedom, so it's been terrific. That's fantastic to hear. And, you know, when I first heard that you'd moved from Labor to One Nation, I thought, my goodness, that takes an awful lot of guts, doesn't it? Because the left is so ideologically uh, clicky. So uh, did you find it there was sort of pushback or it was a little bit difficult to do? Look, I, I, there's no doubt that some of my former colleagues are particularly rude to me and dismissive. There's no doubt about that. I, I certainly find it bizarre that there were people that I was friends with for many, many years um, in the Labor Party who now uh, won't even look at me anymore. So it just tells you a lot that it is about ideology for many of these people because I spent 27 years in the Labor Party and I obviously formed, um, you know, a whole stack of friendships and it's really sad that um, that people have made a decision not to be, uh, not to remain friends with me and, and not even speak to me on some occasions. So, it says a lot about the Labor Party. Uh, certainly the Labor Party has uh, a long history of sending a strong message that if you leave uh, the party, they will do everything they can to essentially blacklist you, and that's certainly what they've tried to do with me. That's in incredibly disappointing, but certainly not surprising. Mm. I'm horrible about those friendships, but let, let me tell you, I do feel your pain. Uh, I remember a few years ago when a lot of my <laughs> conservative friends found out that I was a, a, a conservative and a Trump fan. People I'd known for mm. 10, 11, 12 years, just, they, they just cut you off. So that is sadly what they are like, and that's a very interesting mm. insight about the Labor Party. Now, Tanya, speaking of Labor, given that they have implemented policies that are actively de-industrializing Australia, how can Labor at all be considered the party of the working class? 
Well, they're not anymore, um, Daisy. They're not working class at all. I, when I joined the party in the 90s, there was still a very strong, uh, passionate party that actually cared about the natural and in sort of resources industry. They cared about mining. Uh, the unions were represented with people that actually came from the membership and actually fought for worker rights uh, and manufacturing. And, and it was all about actually uh, pushing the industries that really help benefit Australia's economy. Uh, that's not the case anymore. In fact, the union movement now is just filled with people that are predominantly hacks. They're not people that come from their, from the floor anymore. So they're people that come in and work on a whole series of virtual signalling uh, campaigning at the expense of, of the person on the ground that really needs that sort of membership or, or that support uh, within the union movement. So the Labor Party now is infiltrated with these type of hacks. Uh, and I saw that change probably from about 2010 onwards and it's become very clear that the party is all about pushing a services sort of agenda, renewables, anything that's not actually um, benefiting the working class. So there's no doubt uh, that the party that was once based around unions and based around uh, the workers' rights, it, it's not actually interested in that at all. It's actually interested in just pursuing its virtual signalling projects uh, like The Voice, for example, I'm sure there's a truckload of union organisers and industrial workers right now spending most of their day campaigning on The Voice rather than actually protecting and looking after their members. I think you are absolutely right, uh, Tanya. And the interesting thing is, though, that people are out there are still fooled, aren't they, into voting Labor, believing they are the party of the working class, despite all of the things you just mentioned. How does Labor continue to fool people? Well, they're very good at putting out um, particular figureheads. And right now, for example, they pushed out Chris Minns as the Premier. He's a young man, uh, you know, with a young family. He's got the right look for Premier. Uh, he appeals to people. He's not doing anything overly um, dramatic at the moment uh, or too controversial. And that's how Labor operates. So they'll hide most of the rest of their caucus. For example, I remember last year when I was a shadow minister, we were told very clearly within the Labor Party that it was all about the leader um, and everybody else should just stay in the background. And that's why a lot of people were hoodwinked into voting for Labor at New South Wales earlier in the year because they didn't really know who the ministers potentially would be. They didn't know that there was a whole plethora of very left-leaning uh, ministers or potential ministers that would be pushing their agenda down the track. And they will push their agenda. There's no question of that. They have a big say within the Labor Party. The left really do dominate and, in fact, are the Labor Party now, but um, the right which I was a member of, are almost non-existent uh, in the Labor Party at the moment. And I don't think they'll ever return to any kind of power. Certainly at the federal level, you know, Albanese is, has always been part of the socialist left. He was a leader for many decades of the socialist left in, in New South Wales, and that's what uh, propelled him to become the federal leader uh, nationally. And this is where the Labor Party's at now, I think, uh, there are no, there's no centre-right anymore, there's no right. The Labor Party is dominated by the left and they will continue um, to, to really hoodwink people through, particularly, I think, young people. I think they're, going, they're, they're making it out that they're all about the environment, where really they're all about just pushing their lobbyists and their particular agendas through, uh, often at the expense of, of, the, of the, what 
broadly our families and our communities need. Oh, absolutely, and it is. I just find it so disappointing. I mean, I've never been a Labor voter, but you, you like to have a functional Labor Party and a functional Liberal Party to give, you know, democracy in Australia a bit of a shot, but we're sort of really not seeing that. Now, Tanya, uh, you mentioned the voice to Parliament and Anthony Albanese's preoccupation with that. Um, given that everyday Australians are currently in the midst of a really crippling cost of living crisis. I mean, I, I can't help but think his preoccupation with the voice to parliament um, is testament to how out of touch Labor is with, with Australians. And I mentioned in my editorial, and I want your opinion on this, I think that one of the reasons that the polling on the voice is going down, including among Labor voters, last I checked it was sort of one in three are, are not going to vote yes, is because it's a bit on the nose, isn't it, to tell working people in Australia that they are somehow privileged by virtue of the fact they're not Indigenous when they are having trouble paying their mortgages and feeding their families. Yeah, I think it's a it's a real hard pill for uh, sort of pill for people to swallow. The idea that we're um, responsible and and needing to actually um, effectively position ourselves where uh, we'll have a two tier sort of race system in Australia is not what people want or need. And we are in a cost of living crisis. Albanese knows this. The Labor Party knows this. And and what they're doing is is really the art of distraction. The whole point of this referendum from day dot was about saying, look, we'll get elected in 2022, uh, we'll push on with this referendum, that'll distract people for 12 to 18 months. Uh, I think they thought that they would be able to hoodwink the public a lot easier uh, and it hasn't happened, particularly in parts of southwest Western Sydney where people are really sending a strong message that they're not prepared to back uh, the voice in, particularly around the multicultural communities who are normally traditionally Many of them are Labor voters, but they're essentially making it clear um, that they're not prepared to vote for this. They can't see how this will benefit um, their, themselves or their families or the next generation. And the problem is, is Albanese has not had um, the ability to sell this from, from the get-go, okay? He's supposed, he's supposed to be the chief salesman and he's not capable of, of doing that. In the end, people don't know what the voice is. They don't know, um, they can't see the direct benefit and you're seeing a whole, um, I think right now it's amazing how many people just want to vote no. I, mm. I, and look, we shouldn't be facing for those of us who, who are advocating for no, but I've got to say to you, people come up to me everywhere I go and just say, look, I, I'm just disgusted, I can't vote for this, this is dividing our country, it's it's causing so much distress actually amongst people that they just want to vote no as quickly as they possibly can. And that's the problem that Albanese faces, that he's, he's preoccupied Australia with this. It was meant to be a, a, something of a sorts of a distraction from the, from the cost of living crisis that we currently face, but it hasn't. If anything, it's exasperated people because people are thinking more and more about um, why is this government not focused on how to address inflation or how to address our mortgage rates? Why is this government not focusing on ensuring that our natural resources industry is front and centre in saving our economy? We shouldn't be paying the energy bills that we pay mm. when we should be, in fact, a country um, that is so rich in natural resources, we should be paying the lowest amount of energy um, prices around the world. Instead, we're paying some of the highest. So this is the sort of stuff that people are now questioning. 
Mm, absolutely. And my big question has always been, given that like, blind Freddie could have predicted that post-COVID there would be a terrible cost of living crisis. I mean, obviously it was an inflationary situation and obviously power prices were going to go up. Why did Labor, why did Anthony Albanese make the colossal mistake of thinking it was a good idea to have this referendum in their first term on top of this cost of living crisis? It was just stupidity, wasn't it? No, I think I think they thought they got a pretty good vote in 2022, which they did, let's be honest. Um, there was certainly a swing to Labor. Mm. And I think they thought, well, look, now's the time to strike. It's a great... I think he's always had this list of um, agendas that he's wanting to pursue, virtual signalling. There's no question about that. On the night of the election, he made it very clear that he would commit to in full to, in the, with the Uluru statement. He made that commitment on the election night. So it was front and centre on, on his mind at that time. Interestingly, though, I'm not sure how many people within the Labor Party thought or knew that this would be the big issue, the big ticket item. I, at the time, was handing out for the Labor Party out southwest Western Sydney, uh, and those federal members of parliament certainly didn't talk about the voice when they were campaigning. So when people were campaigning in Western Sydney to try uh, and uh, boot Morrison out, there was no discussion about uh, uh, this particular referendum whatsoever. In fact, interestingly, I haven't really seen many of the Labor MPs uh, campaign on this at all. I think there's, uh, uh, I think many of them know that this will fail, uh, and they don't want to be seen anywhere near it. Uh, I think in the end, there'll be many Labor federal members and, and ministers who will want Albanese to own this entirely. Uh, we know that there was division within the uh, within the ministry in itself about the questions around uh, the, the referendum itself. There was always a bit of division. I mean, the Labor Party comes together when they need to, but there were certainly concerns I know of about this referendum that was well... Uh, in place even last year, where people within the Labor Party, the high echelons of the party, wondered why that, whether this would be a good idea to pursue. But mm. Albanese has uh, persevered and his um, arrogance in many respects in pushing this forward. Even now, knowing that the polls are so bad, he's still called a referendum date in October. Uh, this will cause immense amounts of division in the next six weeks. And it, there'll be division, Daisy, for many many years to come after mm. this referendum. That's the problem, okay? Instead of uniting Australia during a difficult period like the pandemic, we should be united as a nation. We should be focused on how we can support our current generation, our next generation with employment and jobs and opportunities. How do we recover and help families recover from the pandemic? We're still seeing people uh, managing mental health issues and, and job losses and, and, and their own personal health. Mm. Instead of focusing on any of these issues, uh, we will have a, a country that will be divided for many years to come, and you can thank Albanese and the Labor Party for that. Absolutely right, Tanya. I mean, as you say, at a time when we should be uniting after the terrible, terrible COVID years, the last thing we should be doing is focusing on something that seeks to divide us by a, a characteristic that is just so <laughs> arbitrary and superficial as, as race. Uh, I mean, the, the, the preoccupation with race is, is just unbelievable. And as you say, so divisive and not what we need. 
Now, look, Tanya, mm -hmm. it's it's always been clear that Labor has not really been a party for Australia's business community. They've always tended to trend to vote Liberal. Um, and Labor, as we've said, has always posited that it's the party of the workers and also of the poor. But now it's implementing these policies like, say, the crusade to net zero that throw Australia's poor and most vulnerable to the wolves. So who does Labor actually represent? Is this the type of identity crisis Labor is experiencing that people have accused the Liberals of experiencing? I think both major political parties are actually experiencing mm. an identity crisis. Mm. Although I have to say, I think my party has now made a very firm decision um, to go to the path of the left. There's no question of that. Uh, I think they will work in the future. I think they want to uh, take much of the Greens' policies and essentially make it, it, it their own. There's no question of that. Uh, I don't think the Labor Party is ever going to come back to the centre-right or indeed um, back to focusing on the industries that matter. I think that they've made a conscious decision uh, to focus on um, really, uh, you know, the virtual signalling type of projects, you know, the campaigns that um, that are very short-lived and, and really don't provide any um, economic relief for our Australian families. So if you think about this, you think about the fact that the Labor Party now um, is really just such so, so far to the left now that there's really no way of coming back. I think that their obsession with the renewables, for example, their obsession with, uh, you know, the type of sort of, anti-family, anti-faith positions, even faith, for example. Traditionally, the Labor Party had many people that would identify as having a faith, whether they was Catholics or, or people with very strong mm. sort of religious views. There's no, there's no room for them. There's no space in the Labor Party at all anymore, okay? This is not a party that wants to advocate um, for any type of religious freedom or any religious rights. So anybody that had those views would long now have left the Labor Party like I have. Mm. Uh, and, in fact... The only groups of people that still adhere very strongly to faith and might still vote for the Labor Party are multicultural communities who might not be really fully aware that um, the Labor Party doesn't really stand for the values that they themselves stand for. So I think, though, that when it comes to uh, identity issues, I think the Liberal Party is also facing very similar problems. And, I agree. And we saw that with Peter Dutton very recently pushing this idea of having a second voice was just madness. Mm -hmm. I, I'm surprised at Peter Dutton. I, I'm just so surprised that he would have said that or even offered that up. Uh, I see how the left dominate within the uh, Liberal Party here in New South Wales. You know, as the polls were plummeting uh, for The Voice, Mark Speakman, in his wisdom, came out and actually decided to back it, would you believe? <laughs> so the New South Wales Liberals have got no idea, okay, uh, mm. the type of agenda they're pursuing at the moment in New South Wales is really out of touch with, with working people. So oh, I can't see the Liberal Party coming back anytime soon in New South Wales because they can't get their act together. Mm. But it does give opportunity for the Labor Party to pursue some really dangerous agendas in the future. And this is the problem. We don't have, um, we need to have uh, other parties like One Nation um, within federal and state parliaments because mm. you need to have somebody saying no to sort of major political party madness that we're mm. seeing at the moment.
Oh, exactly, exactly right. And look, on the subject of, of One Nation, the good thing about Australia is that we do have other choice rather than these two insufferable major parties who are suffering these identity crises and having the left all over the place, like, for instance, One Nation. Now, tell us, Tanya, in your opinion, why it's in the best interest of everyday working Australians to start voting for One Nation. Well, I think One Nation has actually um, been the party for a number of years now that's been pushing the common sense sort of ideas and, and policies. Uh, often it's, I mean, even with The Voice, it was One Nation that came out very early on and made it clear that this wasn't good for Australia and they had the courage to do that. It took uh, people within the Liberal Party and other um, parties a long time before they actually put their position forward. One Nation with Pauline Hanson was, was right at the get-go making it clear that this was a very divisive um, decision and a, a referendum that would divide Australia. Mm. So I think One Nation's really focused on protecting the natural resources industry. It wants to actually uh, uh, make Australia flourish with its own um, natural resources. Why would we demonise mining? Why mm. would we run these sorts of campaigns, particularly around young people? Like right now I see, Daisy, there's about 20 or so TAFE courses um, that people can do in mining. They can't fill those spaces up. Oh, there, are, there are mining jobs that remain vacant because young people are, are being told don't go don't go near mining. Mm. But mining actually uh, is the backbone of our economy. It's $16 billion into the economy of New South Wales, uh, let alone federally. And it just it disappoints me that... Um, that people can't see that, whereas One Nation can. And then there are other the issues of freedom. I think one thing I really enjoyed about being in One Nation, and I said this right from the get-go, is the freedom that I experienced by being in this party. It is about freedom of speech. I know the misinformation bill that's been proposed federally is an area that One Nation will be absolutely campaigning against. We've already fantastic. started that. That's fantastic. Well, imagine... imagine um, censoring people what they say on, on the social media platform. It's outrageous. We've already got enough censorship in Australia and the idea that we would push laws that would further create um, um, further censorship and, and divide and, and stopping people from thinking themselves. I mean, this is what ultimately um, that bill is about. But yeah. One Nation's always at the front of fighting these um, left wing for the madness. I think also One Nation's about families and communities mm. and it's about holding on to our Australian way of life. I mean, is it really bad to say that we're, we're, we're proud of Australia? Is it bad to, to say that we want to keep Australia Day? Mm. You know, why is this a problem? I, I look at my family. They came to Australia. They migrated here. Um, they were refugees. In fact, they were stateless when they came to Australia. Oh, my goodness. And they were so delighted to be part of a country and to be citizens of Australia, um, you know, to own their own home for the first time in their lives. Mm. These are the sorts of values that I think One Nation espouses, whereas yeah. the Labor Party isn't interested in that. Like home ownership, for example, is not what the Labor Party is pushing. No. You know, they're easy rental laws and tenancy laws, but they're not making it easier to purchase a home. Mm, very, very um, true. And this is what I think mm. One Nation is about supporting small business too. We want to encourage people uh, within Australia too to achieve and I, I just think that both political parties now, the major political parties, are so out of touch with ordinary Australians uh, that really One Nation is the only way forward for most people. I think that is fantastic, fantastic to hear. Uh, Tanya Mihalik, you are fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. No worries. Thank you, Daisy. Thank you.
Well, that's all we have time for tonight on The Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed presenting it. Make sure you tune in next week and every week to ADH-TV. I'll be right here. Good night, world. I'll see you next time.